This is episode number 153. It's not just about money with Jolene Godfrey. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, sports science, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. Money does corrupt us in some crazy ways. It's also a mask because when people are arguing about money, they're not really arguing about money. They're arguing about power, self-worth, ego, fear, anxiety. Thank you so much for the reviews that you guys have been leaving on Apple Podcasts to help the growth and searchability of this show. Super appreciate it. I read every single one and I love it whenever you guys leave those reviews. Thank you also to those of you who are supporting my work financially on Patreon. Patreon is a site. It's patreon.com slash the Sonia Looney show where you can kick a couple bucks a month to the show to help support my work, to help pay my staff and to make sure that this show keeps adding value on the air. So thank you so much to those of you who have continued to support and if you'd like to kick a couple bucks a month, go to patreon.com slash the Sonia Looney show. I hope you guys have had an awesome week so far. It's crazy to think how fast the fall is going by, especially as a pregnant person, whenever you see your due date getting closer and closer, whenever it was really far away, not too long ago. And that'll be another episode. I have been meaning to blog and do a podcast about what it's been like to be a pregnant professional athlete. It's actually been something that's been hard for me to talk about. So I'm working on that, guys. So stay tuned for that. So let's get into today's awesome guest. Her name is Jolene Godfrey. And my husband, Matt Iwanis, is the CEO of Latitude Financial. And he invited Jolene to come speak at an event that he put on for the Kelowna community. And Jolene is the author of the book, Raising Financially Fit Kids. She also has been a pioneer in the movement to increase financial intelligence among young people since 1992, and she is the developer of a unique developmental approach to financial education. Godfrey's introduction of the financial apprenticeship stage of life has given parents and community leaders revolutionary tools for becoming better money mentors for kids. And I love Jolene's work because while we aren't yet parenting any kids, I learned so much about myself by reading her book, Raising Financially Fit Kids, and opening up conversations about money that had perspectives that we had never really thought about before. So even if you don't have kids, this episode can really help you with how you think about money yourself, how you talk about money with your spouse. It, money is this weirdly taboo subject. So I think that this is a really awesome episode for opening up some of those doors to conversation. My husband, Matt, also co-hosts this episode with me, which I love because he brings an interesting perspective of somebody who works in the financial services industry. And we got to record this one in my living room with Jolene while she was in town and spend some time with her. And she's just a really awesome person. With Jolene's skill set, she speaks all over the world and she consults with some of the wealthiest families in America, helping them talk about money, helping them designate responsibilities within the family and helping them have healthy conversations around what it means to have money and how to manage it. Some topics that we discuss in this podcast, and there's a lot, 
We talked about Jolene's background as a clinical social worker and how she got into the financial industry because her background is not in finances. We talked about her work with female entrepreneurs and talking about money with girls, which that could have been its own episode in and of itself. We talked about how female entrepreneurship has evolved. We talked about her book, Raising Financially Fit Kids, Defining Human Capital and what that means, the currency of self-worth and how success isn't just a dollar figure. We talk about what age to start talking to kids about money. And here's a hint. Kids start picking up on how you talk about money from 18 months. I was just so young. When to start revealing your assets and salary to your kids, different types of spenders and savers, which you can even identify in family members, the power of listening, why letting people fail and suffer the consequences in financial situations and in any other situation is important how to manage allowance. And we also talked about this phenomena with lots of kids in their 20s still living at home. Jolene was really awesome. And I'm so glad that she took the time to sit down with us to record this episode. I sure hope that you guys enjoy it. Here is Jolene Godfrey. Welcome to the show, Jolene. This is so awesome to have you in our home. And you're going to be speaking tonight at a Latitude Financial, which is the company my husband, Matt, owns event. Yes. And Matt's also joining us today. Hello, everybody. And I'm excited about today's topic because it's a little bit different than anything we've talked about on the show. We talk about intention a lot. We talk about mindset and doing things in a way that that are for the greater good and for yourself, but we haven't actually directed that towards money. So I'd love for you to tell everybody about your background as a clinical social worker and how you kind of came to getting into the whole financial industry. Well, let me start by saying, I think you're still on topic or on theme because my real passion has to do with intentionality in families. And that probably comes from the fact that I did start as a clinical social worker. And when I was doing very early in my career was family therapy. And that said, my path has been strange and twisted in so many ways, but I ended up moving from a fairly conventional role as a social worker doing family therapy to become the in-house shrink at the Polaroid Corporation back in the day when it was, you know, in a way, the apple of its day. And it was my first real understanding or my first ability to make the connection between one's work and money and one's career and family life. And that intersection, money and family, career and family, became really the focus of my work for the rest of my life. And so I spent 10 years there, had a stint running my own business in the mid-80s, early 90s. That morphed into an interest in financial education for girls. I ended up doing an article for Inc. Magazine, and I went around the country. Inc. Magazine paid for the best dinner parties I will ever have in my whole (laughs) life. But I think I did seven cities over the course of three months. And when I finished, I had these to die for transcripts of women entrepreneurs talking about their lives and how they became entrepreneurial in their own life path. What I became interested in after that was less their lives and more what their lives would have looked like had anybody talked to them about money when they were little girls. And it was that quest or that question that got me to start something called an income of our own. And that was, I think, 
pretty sure it was the first financial education program for girls that had been invented at that point. And so an income of her own ended up doing kind of killer conferences around, actually around the world. I worked in Australia as well as the U.S. And I did that for about, oh, four or five years and then realized the funding for a nonprofit for girls-only financial education was way ahead of its time and nobody was interested in. And that led me to get very practical and decide I would do gender-neutral financial education for kids, boys and girls. And so over time, again, because I'm a social worker, I think developmentally. And so I became interested in what would happen if you started with children when they were very young, like three and four and five. And now, of course, the research is telling us that financial tendencies, financial values actually start as young as 18 months in kids because they are picking up on their parents' behaviors and values in a way that you can't even fathom. It's so mysterious. And yet I say that to say there's a reason that I, when I say to families, early is easier. You know, if you can get them early to understand the ideals you have or the values you have, maybe it, maybe you want your kids to think about living within their means or saving for a rainy day or being mindful about their money or being generous as philanthropists. Well, much easier to instill those values when they're three, four, and five than when they're 17, 18, 19. So as I tell the story, you can see this has been, you know, strange, circuitous path. And I would say I'm still on a strange, circuitous path because now what I'm interested in is having gone from girls to gender neutral and really spending a fair amount of my time with families who are pretty well off. What I'm really interested in now is how do you make some of the things I've developed over the years accessible to all families? Because financial fluency is today a universal need, not something just for families who think that maybe they have a little money to take care of. But again, it comes back to being exceptionally intentional. Not everybody's going to do this work. Before we get into some of the details of your awesome book, Raising Financially Fit Kids, I have a couple questions about your work with number one female entrepreneurs and then communication with girls. So First, how has female entrepreneurship changed over the years? Because I learned from you last night that women couldn't even get credit cards until the 80s. And number two, how do you communicate in a different way? Like your book and all of your earlier books and all of your conferences and things like that were geared towards women and girls. So how is the communication different when you're speaking about money geared towards women than towards gender neutral? Let me start with that one first. Okay. (laughs) I don't know that it is different. I think that the fact that anybody talks to girls and women at all these days is what's different. You know, junior achievement had been around for about, gosh, well over 100 years by the time I started the nonprofit and income of her own. And up to that point, I think, gosh, it was, again, the mid 80s. And there were girls in junior achievement, but they were rare and they were odd. Finally, when an income of her own started, Junior Achievement saw me as competition, and they started recruiting 
little girls and they started having programs for girls. And I think just the fact that we brought attention to the fact that girls should be in an economic conversation at all was what was new. Not that the conversation had to be different, just that they should be included. Interestingly, I'm going to jump forward a bit because I will say that continues to this day. I did a program in New York City just a few years ago now, and it was a big conference with about 150 international families. And the gentleman who had brought me in to speak at this conference gave me, you know how in, in uh, conferences now they have the clickers so you can vote and see the outcome on the screen? Well, he said, if you want to, I've got this, Jolene, if you want to use it, go for it. So I had two slides that I created for this. The first slide title was, what are the hopes you have for your sons? And I had about eight responses. So it was, you know, good career, good health, wealth, happiness. I forget what they all were now, but there were eight different options. And I asked people to vote. And so they voted. I turned around, I looked, and not surprisingly, the answers were all over the place. People wanted all of those things for their sons. So we put that down. I put the next slide up and it was, what are the hopes you have for your daughters? Same eight choices. I kind of assumed it would be roughly the same response. But when I turned around and looked, the universal number one hope for their daughters was happiness. And I'll tell you, I stood there for a few seconds stunned because the drama between what you want for your sons all over the place, what you want for your daughters is happiness. That's all, not profession, not health, not nothing else. And so I said to the group sitting there, is that it? That's all you want? I mean, I, I was deeply <laughs> rude as a speaker, uh, but I was shocked. And to their credit, I think the audience was also shocked. And I, I tell you this story to say that it is as important for us to put girls in economic conversations in families today as it was back in the mid-80s. And I had left the topic of gender in families, really, for quite a long time. I kind of thought we were beyond that. Seeing those two slides reminded me that gender, is, when it comes to money, is still an issue, and we've got to tackle it head on. So... Not a different conversation, just to have the conversation is the big deal. Okay. And how has the role of the female entrepreneur oh. changed over the years? Wow. In some ways, not at all. It's been cyclical. When there are days when I get up and I see the headlines and I think, oh my God, we were dealing with that in the mid 80s. What, what is going on here? And it's deeply frustrating. That said, one thing that's different is that in the mid-80s, when women went, were looking for capital for their businesses, it was rare that they would ever ask for more than $10 million. Now, it's very clear to everybody, you don't even get in the door unless you're asking for $100 million somewhere. And so women have been forced to build bigger visions. I'm not sure that's necessarily the best thing, but I think women have been exercising their entrepreneurial muscle with much bigger vision. So I think that's one thing that's different. I think there is a bigger community of female entrepreneurs. There is one last thing I'll mention because it's worth noting. I used to get asked to go give talks for YPO every now and then, and I never much in 
somebody's going to hear this, but I never much enjoyed giving talks for YPO. And what is YPO? Young President's Organization, okay. big international organization. And for a very long time, it was white men. That's all it was. And it was pretty conventional, to be frank. Last year, I was invited to a YPO program in Austin, and there were three amazing women, two amazing women plus me, I'll say, <laughs> uh, on, the, on the program. And the guy who had organized it stood up and he said, look, I have granddaughters, I have daughters, I have my own wife. Our job, our responsibility is to make sure that they all have the same opportunities that the women I've brought in here today have had. And so we have to do everything we can to support them. Having that kind of clarity and call to action on the part of a leader in YPO, that's new. So I think there is a difference, though there are days I'm deeply discouraged about it still. So, Okay. So getting into your book, which I've never seen anything like this before. And first, I'll preface this with, for the listeners, the book is Raising Financially Fit Kids, but there is a lot to learn as an adult because most of us never had this type of conversation with our parents as kids. So if you're interested, you can learn about yourself, like what kind of spender you are, like how to talk about money, what money even means. And theme that goes throughout your book is about human capital. And mm. you have broken that down into a few different categories. So can you elaborate on that? Sure. You hear, actually, Matt, you probably hear this all the time. Many financial institutions will talk, sort of give lip service, I would say, to human capital. I think you go many steps beyond personally in, in your own work. But over the years, people have talked about human capital, social capital, and intellectual capital. And in some circles, those are research words. Those are real ideas that people have built on for quite a long time. But typically, when I'm sitting with a group of people and I say, so tell me something about your intellectual capital, they'll just freeze. It's like, what? And, you know, finally, you can tease out of them. Well, you know, it's your degree. It's anything you know. But as soon as I say, look, I make the best apple pie in America, which is pretty much true. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's time for a visit, I think. Exactly. <laughs> it loosens people up and they begin to think, oh, okay, so what is it I know? So I use that because what I have come to understand is that in our lives, more and more people have somebody, whether it's just your bookkeeper or somebody in the family who keeps track of your real estate, your stocks, your savings account. That's a way of accounting for your financial assets. But when I say, okay, when was the last time you did an inventory of your intellectual, social, and human assets, people look at me as though I have three heads. I don't know what I'm talking about. But it turns out if you are keeping an inventory of what you know, what your connections are, what your human capital and family is, and by that I mean everything from your memories to, you know, the watch that was passed down from one generation to another. And one family I work with, they have a song that gets passed on from one generation to another. Those are the things that help children, help families know who they are. You know, those kids who, who have a sense of identity from their human capital, 
aren't so reliant on their logos, on the the car they drive or the logos they wear or any of that silly stuff because they have some internal identity. And so one of the things I'm trying to do is get people to be more mindful, to use your word, of all of those other things that that constitute wealth. So when I think about assets, I don't just think about money. What I will say to families is, look, your wealth isn't just about the money. It's about what you have put together as a family, what you are nurturing that makes you wealthy in what you know, who you're connected to, what your family memories are, what your traditions are. That's the stuff that makes you wealthy. And by doing that, what you say to kids is life is about more than just money. Now, obviously, we want kids to be economically mindful and to be nurturing their financial assets as well. But it's not enough just to focus on financial education. Yeah, I think that some people view that almost those two concepts of financial wealth and human capital or intellectual wealth or social wealth as almost mutually exclusive and becomes almost like a self-defense mechanism. I either have lots of one or lots of the other, and I've chosen this over this. Right. But I think what you're saying is that a healthy family has both of those and both of those help one another become stronger. Exactly. I've put it together actually, and this came from a client of mine, we were working one afternoon and he looked up at me and he said, you know, Jolene, if you just move these words around, the first letter spells fish. And so I now talk about the fish inventory. It's financial, intellectual, social, and human, because I figure every five-year-old can remember the fish inventory. And it turns out children actually are pretty savvy about being able to identify those other assets in the family. So if you start really young with kids and then keep it up, you know, two or three or four times a year, you're in a way better position than families just keeping track of their money, to your observation. And when you're having that conversation, is that typically a parent and a child or can that be extended family? Could that be grandparents? I mean, how, how does that often look like? All of the above. You know, the largest family I ever worked with in putting together one of these inventories was a family of 150, you know, generations oh and branches. And it was so exciting to just wander around the room listening as they were working in small groups, because I had them do it in a number of rounds. And what I kept hearing is, I didn't know that about you. I didn't know that. And It does open up a whole set of ways for families to learn about one another. But, you know, I also have worked with mom, dad, and two kids, and I will break up. First, I'll have dad with one of the kids, mom with one of the kids. And I remember one time one of the moms said afterwards, I said, okay, now I want to do the parents and the children together. And the mom said, oh, it'll be the same. And I said, I don't think so. And indeed it wasn't. Every time you move the dynamic, of course, people remember, they uncover other parts of themselves that they forget otherwise. So whatever the size of the family, you can do this. And it's always a very liberating exercise for families. So it's a bit more engaging than, what did you learn at school today? And then nothing, and then dinner. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Yes. Yeah, I love that this conversation that you start with is that the currency of self-worth and the currency and measuring stick of how good somebody is, the measurement of success, isn't just the number in your bank account because it's so often blown out of proportion in our society that people are left chasing money, which 
we do need money. We do need to know how to manage our money, but there's a lot more in our lives. And at the end of the day, when someone's on their deathbed, they're not going to say, gosh, I wish I made more money. They probably are going to say, well, I wish I had invested more in these other forms of, of capital that we just talked about. And having those values up front for your family to know that, hey, like we have a lot of things and we're worth, we're worthy and we're enough in a lot of different ways. It's not just about the dollars is, is super powerful. Actually, there's another book I will refer your listeners to. It's called The Table Where the Rich People Sit. And it's a so-called children's book. It is my favorite. It's the book I give away most often to the families I work with. It is about a little girl who calls a family meeting. She's 10, and she pulls her parents in to inform them they're not making enough money and they need to get better jobs. And it is the story of their going through, well, what do you think it's it's worth that we get to live in this place where we see the open sky and we're living in a part of the world where we can go out and play in the desert when we want to. And it is the process of taking this 10-year-old through what you've just talked about, which is life is about more than how much money we make. So I think it's an important value to communicate. And I think even for... Like if you substitute the word money for achievement or recognition, I'm thinking as for some of our listeners who are athletes, you know, I just want to win, I want to win, or I want to achieve. And that's where my value comes from. It's a very similar, it feels like a similar emotional connection as to the recognition I get by having the big house, the big bank account, the big car. You know, I think that that point of recognition is, is really interesting these days. My own, this may be wishful thinking, but I... I have a sense that everybody wants a connection. They want something real now, that social media has been pretty disappointing. At the end of the day, having 10,000 or 10 million likes or Facebook friends or Twitter followers or whatever it is, that's not an authentic connection. And for people who really are feeling empty in one way or another, They want to be connected. And I think what we're talking about is that it's really easy to get those connections, but you have to give up some of that recognition. You have to give up that chase for the biggest number, the biggest following, whatever it is, because that deeper connection is going to be elusive otherwise. It's interesting. Yeah, we've really frequently, I like talking because I struggle with this, like the chase for external validation and those types of things. But with money, so now we, we, our family, we're talking about money, everybody's sitting down and you have in your book a bunch of different ages of development and you have starting at age five to start talking about money. And, and most people are probably listening like a five-year-old doesn't know how to talk about money. So how do you start talking to a five-year-old about money? <laughs> and they're right, sort of. What I say is between the ages of really two, three, four and six, All I really want families to focus on is language and values. So I want you to be using the real words of money. So when you're talking to one another, the words they overhear is, well, you know, we've balanced the checkbook. We're living within our means. We are doing, don't use cute words. I mean, it's so tempting to look at those darling children and use cute words with them or baby words or something. But it means that you're giving them a language that then you are going to want them to translate later on. And now 
it's going to be a little bit harder. So when I say I want you to talk about money in real terms, just use the real words. Don't polish it over in any way. And then be really clear on your values. You know, I frequently will ask couples to either use an outside list or make them up, but each identify your own five top values that drive your financial decisions. Write them down independently, put them up on the refrigerator somewhere, and then look at where do you have common ground and where are you different? And be mindful that whatever argument you're having, the underlying issue is driven by those values. So understand that when you're talking in your family, that's what your children are overhearing and they're taking that in in some way. So values and language for the youngest kids are really all I want families to pay attention to. Though I will say even at 10, families will say, so they don't ask when kids are 10, but families will say to me, so when should we start talking about a prenup or when should we start talking about putting money aside for kids? And I'll say, mm, when they're 10, because again, I'm trying to normalize conversations that feel like they're taboo in families. When it comes to money, having conversations that are taboo just totally screws up the family dynamic. So early and often is how I describe what you need to talk about with kids. Yeah. And one question I have, which I think I've seen in the back of your book maybe was, when do you start revealing like your assets? And, you know, I remember my family, we came from my dad worked and my mom stayed home and we never talked about how much money dad made. And I, I still don't really know the total amount I can guess, but what, like, when do you start talking about those things? So there are two answers to that. On the one hand, my first answer is always when they're ready. And what I mean by that is when they have that language, when they understand some of these concepts, otherwise everything is out of context and they don't know what it means anyway. So having a 10-year-old know how much his family's asset base is, is to give him and him or her information that doesn't necessarily have any real meaning. So when you're ready is the one answer. But on the other side, you know, I remember sitting in a room with a group of families not too long ago, and a father said to me, listen, I don't know what to do. My nine-year-old came home from the first day of school, and he went through all of his classmates on Zillow to find out how much all of their homes were worth. <laughs> that is a nine-year-old who knows how to use Zillow, and he's going in to find out the relative worth of his classmates. So when we know we're living in a world in which very young children have access to the internet and can find out almost anything, every time a parent says to me, oh, my kids don't have any idea, I think, oh, you are so deluded, because <laughs> of course they know. So I think... You know, in a way that tells us how much more important it is to talk about these other forms of capital and to talk about values, because the more information they have, particularly if it's not in context, the more confusing it's going to be. The other thing that I know is that when you withhold information, kids make things up. <laughs> you know, they, they have these fantasy lives. So I have kids who, with whom... I work in their families who are convinced they have these monster trust funds with these bottomless pits. And I think, oh my God, somebody's got to tell that kid there is no trust fund <laughs> because they won't in fact really pay attention to what they need to learn if they think, oh, it doesn't apply to me. That's not my worry. 
So it's a complicated question when somebody says, well, how old should a kid be when you start talking? I think, you know, you've got to start early and you've got to make sure that your conversation is accompanied by your values and the kinds of messages you want them to hear. I will say just one other really quick story. I was in a home of a very wealthy family and they lived right next, it was a neighborhood where you could see the house like here, very close next door. And the mother had a four-year-old and the four-year-old said, how come we only have one car and they have three? Well, this is a family that could have afforded to have 10 cars if they wanted it. And she said, how do I explain to that four-year-old that the family next door may have three cars, but they're probably all, you know, things that they have put on credit. And our one car isn't on credit. We paid for it. So there's life if it's leveraged and life if it's paid for. And I want to raise kids who live an unleveraged life. How do I do that? And so that's another element of the question. Well, how do you, when do you, how do you? It's complicated. How would you have that? I'm curious, how would you have that conversation? Because like you said, kids are incredibly observant and they might even come home and say, well, so-and-so's father or mother is a who are a doctor and they make a million dollars a week or some fantastical right. number. And so how do you how and do you so approach that? The the magic line. By the way, I should have gone to medical school because that sounds <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I don't know if doctors actually make that much. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they don't. They used to. I don't that know that they do kid. now. <laughs> so it's a laudable profession. Yeah. So I do have just an opening line that I hope all families will adopt. And it goes like this. In our family, we. And what you're doing as soon as you start with in our family, we, you're saying whatever values the family next door has, that's not who we are. And our expectation is these values. And this is why. This is who we are. It's really important to deliver these messages often to be repeating them frequently. The repeat, repeat, repeat is a story you'll hear from me all the time, because you're right. Kids are really good at coming at you and asking the same question a hundred times. They bully their parents. And so standing up to persistent children is part of what you have to do. But the that phrase in our family, we, is a way to give kids, again, context for what's appropriate in their house. I have a family who has another line that I've stolen a hundred times because it's so good. A family that's very well off, very prosperous, and the kids will ask something and either parent will just look at the kid and the kid will now say, I know, I know, just because we can doesn't mean we should. And I think that's the other response. You know, there are times when kids will say to their parents, we can afford this. Now, whether they can or not, parents don't want to let their kids down. You know, God knows you don't want to disappoint your kids. But I think if you get used to saying, well, yeah, maybe we can, but that doesn't mean we should. What Again, what you're doing is setting boundaries for kids. Kids don't like boundaries. They hate boundaries, you know. And yet our job as grownups is to help them develop boundaries. And so there are these phrases that I think that help because these are not simple yes, no, or when answers. It's more complicated than that. Something that I thought was really helpful as an adult, it was reading about the different types of spenders and savers. And within our family, like Matt and I both have sat down and said, 
first of all, think of which one you are. And then we tried to identify which one the other was. And then we've had this conversation with our parents, our brothers and sisters and our extended family, even our nieces and nephews. So how did you, could you give a couple examples of some of those and how you came up with those? Well, I came up with them mostly observing. I mean, at this time, I've worked with over 400 of the world's wealthiest families. And so my database is <laughs> bizarre, to say the <laughs> least. And in addition to that, of course, I have worked with families at all levels of the economic spectrum. Um, so I have a pretty good observational database. And that's really where it, where it derived from. What is interesting, though, is that I go into I have yet to find a family in which all of the kids are any one particular style. So it's more like what you describe. In, in any one family, you will have somebody who, you know, can't let money stay in their pocket for more than 10 minutes. You may have a hoarder. You may have a really generous kid who wants to just give money away all the time. It's a real mix of styles. And what that means is that it's very hard to have a kind of one response fits all. So in a family, to be a parent, if you have two or three or more kids, you are dealing with different styles, different ways of responding to economic triggers in the family. It becomes really exhausting, but ever so much more important to be giving the set of values that are important in the family, but adopting different styles of responding within those values to each kid's needs. So are there types of personalities that are easier to engage with this over? Are there more difficult types? Like, because I know, I think there was seven different types in there. There's seven in different there. Are types. There you, are there some when you go, oh, geez, if we've got one of these, we're, we're going to have a hard time? Or is there enough of a playbook for each type that you're pretty confident you can get them where they need to go? You know, I do feel at this point there's a playbook for each one of them. And I'm not going to go through each of them now, but I'll tell you the one that often worries me is the the kid, and frequently these are girls. I mean, this is part of the economic conversation with girls. Talking about money makes lots of people uneasy. And lots of times what I find is girls will want to give money away because it is a way to get rid of any conflict that may be going on. If they're feeling uneasy about conversations about money, then best to share it right away, best to give it away somewhere. Generosity often covers anxiety. And if I can get to what those issues of anxiety are, we can deal with that. And so then we can manage, not that I don't want kids to be generous, obviously I really do, but I want it to happen inside a context of actually mindful economic practices, period. And I want them to be doing it inside some strategic decisions they make just to give money away, to make conflict go away is something I try to get around. So that's the big one for me. I mean, you do have consummate spenders. I mean, you know, every family has somebody who just has no boundaries on how much they're spending. They're trying to feed themselves somehow. Generally, it's not very successful. So again, getting to what are they hungry for is one way to get to that. It seems like that oblivious type would be the hardest. Like, And for those listening, the oblivious type is though they just have no idea. Like they don't look at their credit card statement. They don't look at their bank account. They just spend the money. And we have some of those characters in our family. 
and we've tried to coach them and it's been really hard because everything that we say doesn't work. So how do you like, cause a lot of times the oblivious kid becomes the oblivious adult with lots of oblivious credit card debt. <laughs> well, that's exactly right. And I do, I agree. I think the oblivious member of the family is often the hardest one. The oblivious one is also the one who is often pretty manipulative and is able to pull the other resources of the family in because somebody's willing to rescue them. Somebody's willing to get them out. And so they know that what they're learning is, well, I don't need to pay attention because yeah, something will take care of me. Something will be okay. <laughs> Consequence early on is really all I ever can say to families. Look, until people understand there's cause and effect, that in fact, they will not just be rescued. Nothing is going to change. What you're doing is reinforcing behavior that's not just counterproductive for them, but it's destructive for the rest of the family. And so, yeah, I think what's hard about oblivious is that it causes so much pain for other family members, in part because nobody wants to be mean to a family member. And particularly if you know the outcome may be, this is going to be a homeless member of the family, they're going to be on their own, they may be sick. I mean, the consequences can in fact be dire on the other hand, consequences will be dire if you don't do anything. So it's a hard one. Now I have a question about adults. So the challenging thing, I think, for a lot of parents, maybe they, of course, may not have got this kind of a upbringing when they were kids. Now they have kids, maybe they're kids. And, and from my perspective, when my clients come to talk to me about teaching their kids about money, it's often when the kids are quite old. It's not when they're 5 or 10 or even 12 or 15. It might be when they're 17, 19 or 20. And now they're beginning that journey, if they're lucky, if the parents have said, hey, here's a resource and you should go speak with them. How do you take, and I think you addressed this in the beginning of the book, how do you address the parent that knows they're under-equipped but wants to do the right thing with their kids? First, let me say, most parents didn't get this, in part because we didn't need it. I mean, most of us got, or some of us, got lessons from our families when somebody said, no, you can't spend that, or you have to save for a rainy day or whatever. We did get messages from our families, and that constituted whatever financial education there was, because back in the day, you couldn't get in as much trouble financially as you can today. I mean, think, we, we actually didn't have access to credit cards to the extent that we do today until very recently. I remember when you couldn't go buy stocks, you had to, on your own, you couldn't get online and do that. Heck, the internet didn't even exist. So there were all kinds of ways that there were limits on the kind of trouble you could get into. That said, now what I do is try to engage the entire family. So recently, for example, I was with a family that one of the grandparents brought together. And it was the grandparent and his grandkids. And the grandkids were between 16 and 35. There was The 16-year-old was the outlier. The others were all kind of 20 and over. It was one of the most wonderful afternoons I have spent in a really long time because the grandfather was saying, look, we are here to learn together as a family because stewardship in our family is important and they love their grandfather and so they'd do anything for him. And so we went through a series of diagnostics around values and the fish inventory that I spoke of earlier. I mean, we were talking about concepts that they'd never had a conversation about before. And it was liberating because I wasn't there to tell them not to spend money. 
I was there to help them put together some practices that was going to give them kind of a, a new way to manage their financial lives. When we finished, I had three or four different sets of data and I went back and created a two-tiered program for this family. One was a set of small workshops we're doing for the family. One is on entrepreneurship, another one is on lifestyle budgeting, another one is on investing, and I forget the fourth one. But but that was one for the whole group. Anybody could opt into that who wanted to. And then for each one of the grandchildren, there was their own map, their own plan for what they were going to do. And a map in some cases means going. there's a conference I want you to go to. There is a leadership program I want you to go to. It turns out that financial fluency isn't just about balancing your checkbook. It is a much bigger part of your life than that. But you need somebody to help you create the map for how to actually build the plan that's going to be right for you. It's fairly labor intensive, you know, it requires somebody to really listen. Most of us don't get listened to very much. And in families, you have this amazing opportunity to really spend time together and listen to one another. But again, that's a skill that has to be learned. Something that you said just a few minutes ago was about letting people, as my dad would say, you will suffer the consequences. And this can be, as you mentioned, quite extreme. And it's really hard for people to allow this to happen. So like two scenarios that come to my mind is a teenager that has a credit card and they just keep racking up the credit card and the parent just keeps paying off the credit card, which you can't do. And then number two, we have a lot of friends that have older children in their, well, they're not children, they're like in their 20s. But the people, the kids, like they move out, but then they don't know how to manage their money or they either don't want to work or something like that. And then they end up moving back in with the parents. And then they, the parent is like, gosh, my like 25 year old is still living with me. So how do you actually allow your kid to suffer the fall? Because, you know, not everybody is as, I guess, firm with how they allow this to happen. So for that parent who's listening, he's like, gosh, like I, I couldn't let my kid just like go bankrupt. What do you do in that situation? Well, the first one is an easier one, the teens with credit cards. And I think they're actually, Matt, this is a place where, you know, I think your profession can be really helpful in that parents need support to say, look, it's not that you're being a bad parent. You're a good parent if you are, in fact, saying to a kid, look, until you can manage your credit card, you can't have another one because we know what the credit card companies will do as soon as the parent pays it off. They send out another credit card with a higher balance on it because they know it's going to get paid off. So I think for the teenager, it's really taking a hard line and it has to be, you know, probably a prepaid card that's what you get and you don't get any more until that one's paid. I mean, I think that one is easier, though it does still take enormous support to tell parents this is okay because the parent says, oh, well, all of their friends are going to or doing, I don't want my kid to be different. 
Well, in our family, we. In our family, exactly. Thank you. That's exactly right. You know, there is a corollary to that in which what I say is, look, I want your kids to be weird. I want them to be as weird and strange and different as possible because that's who they become. You know, we each need to embrace our weirdness, really. (laughs) And one way you do it is to make sure that you're not trying to do what everybody else does. So... With teenagers, I'm really careful to be very hardcore on this. And I think the support to give parents permission to let their kids be weird and to stick to the rules is actually really important. But the other case that you put out there, I think, is is harder. And it's harder for some reasons that we haven't identified yet. And that is... There used to be all kinds of jobs young people could take, and yet most of those jobs have been professionalized. So, you know, gardening, for example, there are gardening companies and people who have gone to school or they are immigrants who have come in and have real experience in gardening. There's almost no profession left which hasn't been professionalized or, more importantly, on its way to being automated. And when you hear people talk about the fourth industrial revolution, what parents don't really understand is that there is a convergence of technology and artificial intelligence and all kinds of changes that are occurring that are making where kids fit a whole other, more difficult act or process than they used to be. Just getting a four-year degree even isn't necessarily an answer to what's going to happen to my kid. So I mention this only to say that helping kids prepare for the future is a long, ongoing process that most parents aren't prepared for. It's why, again, I think there may be room in the financial profession to begin to help families look at, well, you know, Are there other places? Is this a kid who needs to go into the Peace Corps? Is this a kid who needs to go into the military? Are there other institutions? You know, the kid who just doesn't want to work, you know, we're back to consequence. It's just not an option. We all have to participate. In our family, we all do chores. We all make our own bed. We all help set the table. You know, if you're not getting that message across, then what you're telling kids is that they are privileged in some way and that they're off the hook. That then gets internalized and they don't develop life skills. And the lack of development of those life skills then makes those 20-somethings feel, you know, incomplete, unfinished. They really are frightened and anxious and they don't know what to do because they haven't been prepared on the most basic level. So, you know, again, it's going to get ugly in families where the preparation hasn't happened, but it doesn't have to be ugly to mortality. You know, I think there are things you can do, but it takes a village. What about money arguments between partners, like between spouses? Because money, I'm sure, is a reason why a lot of people get divorced. Discomfort talking about money and then it becomes a bigger issue or just generally disagreeing about money. Or even to, in addition to that, even the power struggle between who controls what or who earns what within a relationship can be uneven. And boy, has that gotten true in the last decade or two. Yeah, I mean, I had one woman sit me down and say, look, my money is emasculating my husband. Now what do I do? 
And what she meant was she earned more money than he did. You know, that isn't how we grew. We didn't grow up with those models in our head. And now the power structure you're talking about really has to do with who makes what money and what does that say about our self-worth. It's why I come back to, listen, before you get married, you need to sit down with those values and really test one another in terms of what does equality mean? What, What happens when it's not perfectly equal? What happens when it shifts over time? Money does corrupt us in some crazy ways, It's also a mask because when people are arguing about money, they're not really arguing about money. They're arguing about power, self-worth, ego, fear, anxiety. They're arguing about all those things. And if it comes out as, oh, you know, you just spent too much or, or you're too obsessive or whatever the accusation is. They're really just covering over other things that are a little deeper. And if you can get a third party who can help you hear what the real issues are underneath, you can take apart those threads and I think work through this so that as families, you don't have to be completely undone by the topic of money. But I think people don't understand the difference between symptom and cause. And they often see money as the problem when... Frequently, it's not that at all. It's just how it's showing up. Yeah, there's a, a he's a friend and also an author and incredible business person. His name's Jesse Itzler, and he's uh, Sarah Blakely's husband. He's a great guy. But something that he said that really stuck with Matt and I is he was talking about money, and he said money is a multiplier. So like, whenever you get more money, if you were a jerk to begin with, you become an even bigger <laughs> jerk. And if you're like a really great person with philanthropy in mind and and things like that, you become an even better person. I think that's very wise. I think he's absolutely right. Yeah. (laughs) I have a question about social media and the influence of that on kids and money, because, I mean, there's all kinds of conversations around social media and raising your kids. But from your perspective, how, how do you manage that, especially with the amount of new media that comes and a discomfort from, I mean, I think... If you look at different types of social media, you can tell the age of the yeah. user depending on the platform they're on. So how do you help your kids maybe disengage, if that's even the right thing, from influences that uh, that are external like that? There are two things. One is I do think you limit. As a parent, you know, we're limiting kids all the time for their well-being. The argument I often give is, look... You would never give your kid total access to all the chocolate bars in the store. You would say they'd be too fat, they'd have diabetes. I mean, there would be all kinds of things. And so as a parent, you'd say, you know, you don't get chocolate bars all week long and you get these many. You set a limit. I think social media is exactly the same. I think access to screens is exactly the same. Grown-ups seem to do that for themselves, too. (laughs) Uh, Yes, I think that's exactly right. There is one other piece of it on the other side, though. Um, You will hear me talk tonight, and I am constantly talking about the importance of drip, drip, drip. You have to repeat, repeat, repeat. And What I mean by this, and you'll hear more of the story tonight, but I was giving a talk at the Harvard Business School a number of years ago. And I remember being there thinking, Harvard Business School, Marketing 101, of course, repeat, repeat, repeat. That's what Marketing 101 is. And we know that's what every company in the world is doing. They are hammering on your kids. As a parent, Your only defense is to nag. Nag is 
marketing 101, repeat, repeat, (laughs) repeat. And so what I say to families now is, I don't want you to feel badly about what you think of as nagging because you're up against a machine out there that's going after your kids. And unless you are giving counter messages repeatedly, loudly, regularly, they're gonna buy the messages that are out there in the ether because they're stronger than you. So, uh, you know, what I've really said is, yes, you have to limit and you have to be really clear on your messaging. So we have about five minutes left already. (laughs) And I wanted to ask you about allowance. That's something that I've listened to several other podcasts that you've been on and read a bunch of stuff that you've written. And allowance is something that repeatedly comes up. So in five minutes, can you talk about <laughs> how to... Oh, this is my least liked question. Yeah. Yes. Um, <laughs> you've heard me say an allowance is not a salary or an entitlement. It is a means of practicing how to manage money. And so I know out there, there is a, in the general world, there's this idea, if you have these three jars, spend, save... Give. Give, thank you. See, I can't remember. (laughs) Then that takes care of it. But what I remind families is children have cash flow problems. So it may be that you had a kid, you have a child who has two birthday parties this month and none next month. And if part of the allowance plan is they've got to pay for the gifts out of their allowance, you know, they're sitting there thinking, wait, wait. I didn't have any this month. I've got two next month. I don't understand how to manage the, how do I do that? Because once you've taken the money out for the two, it's like, wait, I don't have any money left. What I really want allowances to do is to be a place where you introduce cash flow right up front. And so what I'm trying to teach families is, even for the littlest kids, you use the words income, And income in my world is earned income. There are chores you do not to earn money, but because you are part of the family. But there are other ways you can earn income as a kid. So for example, what I tell parents is you can't pay them to fix their own sock drawer, but if you were going to pay somebody else to fix your sock drawer, you can pay them for that. So there's earned income, there's windfall, You know, it's the gift card from grandparents or it's the cash that you put secretly in their pocket. So there's windfall, earned income and allowance. And that becomes total income. And then you have to figure out what expenses you want them to pay for. For little kids, it may be one thing you are teaching them to pay for a week or months or whatever. And every year you add a little bit to that so that what you're teaching is income, expenses, balancing, living within means. Those are words they're hearing really early on. It's a practice that they're starting. You know, kids, by the time they're 12, they really hate allowances. Why should they want to do an allowance if they've had this very cool subsidy happening all the time? And it was just, you know, mom and dad handing out money. They're pretty smart. They wouldn't want an allowance at that stage of their life. So start early. Though that said, if anybody's listening, if you think, oh, I've got a 17-year-old, it's too late. I want you to know that that for me is code that parents give out that it's just too hard. I don't want to put in the work. So yeah, allowance is a hot button for me. I take it pretty seriously. So what you're saying is it's never too late for your kids as long as you're willing to put up the work up front to help them. 
That's right. Yeah, being a parent is the most exhausting work on the planet. There is no question about it. It's for the strong and brave of heart to be a good parent. (laughs) Oh, geez. (laughs) Yeah, sorry about that. But you have lots of support, and that's the other key. (laughs) That's right. right. (laughs) So where's a good place for people to find your book and maybe some of the other things we talked about earlier on, your other books? Where's the best place for people to get in touch with you? Well, you know, Amazon carries all of my books, and Raising Financially Fit Kids is the most recent. I am working on a new one, so hopefully there will be a new one soon. But I have a blog that I post on occasionally. It's called The Unexpected Table. Mm-hmm. That's a place where yeah, every now and then when I moved, I put something new on it. I did put a piece on there that's related to the college cheating scandal that I think is an important blog because it, it speaks to you know what parents are anxious about. So that's on there now these days. All right. Well, we will link all of those in the show notes, including where to get your book and how to get in touch with you. And thank you so much for taking your time to come on the show. It was fun. And for those of you who don't get to listen to Jolene tonight, sorry you're missing out. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I hope you guys loved hearing from Jolene. Pick up one of her many books. The book we talked about the most in this episode was Raising Financially Fit Kids. But if you just go on Amazon and type in her name, some of the other books that she mentioned are available as well. Also go to her website, and I'm really excited about her new book that she's working on as well. She talks about it a little bit on there. I don't know what liberties I have to talk about this book, so I'll let you read about it on her website. The best reminder for me, especially with the type of work that I do, was that there are a lot more things to having wealth in your life besides just the dollar figure that you make. As a sponsored athlete and an entrepreneur, the dollar figure that I make goes all over the map and it's, it's, it's tends to be kind of inconsistent. So sometimes I end up saying, well, I'm not very being very successful this month or this year because I'm not making as much money, but that's just one of the categories of what wealth is. And I really like the intellectual capital and the social capital part of what it means to be wealthy because Man, if you're bringing your skills to the table and you're making the world better, there is value in that, even if there's not a big dollar stamp attached to it. And there can be as well. Something else that I found really interesting about talking about money was that I don't know what it is, but it seems like in certain categories or industries that making money and being successful in that category is something almost to be ashamed of. So Learning that there's different ways to think and talk about money has just been something that's been helpful for me and something that I'm going to continue to work on and remind myself of that success is not just measured by the dollar figure in your bank account. That's it for today's show. If you found value in this, send this to your family members. Wishing you all the best success in your training and adventures. And we'll see you back here next week.